And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Bolton has been a fixture on the American diplomatic and political scene for nearly half a century, long the bete noir of the left for his strongly interventionist views and loudly expressed distrust of global institutions. He suddenly finds himself under assault from the right after splitting with President Trump, whom he served as national security advisor. His strongly critical account of life with this president, the room where it happened, is a national bestseller and the subject of ongoing legal proceedings. I sat down the other day with Ambassador Bolton at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and here's that conversation. Ambassador John Bolton, good to see you. I learned right before we went on the air that you were at the University of Chicago 10 years ago on this day, <laughs> speaking to the Federalist Society and the College Republicans. So welcome back. Yeah, you have uh, better information than I do. <laughs> <laughs> we're, these, these guys are keeping track of you, obviously. So uh, as are many other people, uh, because you've made a lot of news lately. I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about your life and your your own journey. Uh, but first, I just need to ask you some questions as someone who spent uh, a fair amount of time with the President of the United States uh, to interpret the events of the last few weeks through the prism of that experience. Uh, we all know the President became ill. He had the coronavirus. Uh, to this day, we don't know exactly when he got it. We know a lot of his aides have it as well. Um, the doctor's reports have been sketchy. There hasn't been any in-person briefing in many days. But what is going on? What do you make of that? What do you imagine is going on inside the White House? And is he just calling all these shots himself? Well, I think he is calling all the shots himself. I think uh, the, the behavior that, uh, that the public has seen this past uh, 10 days or so uh, may seem unusual to people who haven't followed it uh, over the past four years. Uh, but from my perspective, there was no difference really in how he performed. Uh, he, he has a feeling that by talking about the reality he wants to have, if he talks about it often enough, if he convinces enough people that he's right, if he intimidates other people into not arguing with him, he can make it real. So w when was he diagnosed with COVID-19? Uh, he'll tell us what day it is, I'm sure, and others will believe it. Uh, is he fully cured of it now? Is he really not uh, uh, transmitting the disease? Well, he apparently thinks so, and so does the White House physician. But uh, all of this is is uh, part and parcel of the Trump personality. And I don't think uh, at this stage uh, that there's anybody left at the White House who, uh, other than the family, uh, who can really say no to him. Mm -hmm. What about his state of mind? I, I, I take your point that this is Trump. I mean, this, in a sense, his handling of his own virus has been a microcosm of how he's tried to handle the virus generally, which is to impose his will on events and persuade people that things are different than they appear uh, to be. But he's also been on uh, significant medications for this, including steroids um, and you know, I watched him last night at an event, and he seemed particularly wound up uh, at that event. And I was wondering if there is if there should be any concern about his state of mind right now. I don't think it's any different than when he was not on steroids. I think <laughs> I think uh, to me, I've watched it all. It just looked like another day at the office, and. Uh, um, you know, I think anybody gets uh, an adrenaline high when you're in a rally like that. That that part uh, I don't find surprising. But uh, this insistence, this obsession with with one thing or another as it's come up, for example, the drive around Walter Reed uh, mm -hmm. the day before he was released, he wanted to do it. And by God, he was going to do it. And, you know, when you're president, uh, you don't have to eat broccoli if you don't want to. And you can go on a ride with the Secret Service. Uh, so he is... Uh, uh, I think he must see that the political environment for him is becoming increasingly problematic. And so his desire to do what he wants to do 
uh, in the last uh, weeks of the campaign, I think becomes more insistent. But I don't think that's a function of chemistry. I think that's Trump under pressure. What about uh, from the perspective of a national security advisor? What concerns do you have about what what he might do? And what concerns do you have about what malign actors might do uh, looking at him in this moment uh, of instability? Well, to, to take the to take the foreign uh, question first, look, I think it's customary during an American election campaign, especially in the closing days. Uh, it will also be true during the transition period when uh, there is uncertainty as uh, the incumbents power ebbs and the and the incoming president's power begins to flow uh, that adversaries will look to take advantage of us that doesn't mean that they will try and confront us directly on a major issue uh, necessarily it means in uh, locations and on issues that may not have been at the top of the priority list anyway but certainly in the environment we're in are getting a lot less attention uh, than they probably deserve that they would seek momentary advantage. Will the Russians try something in Belarus, in Ukraine? Will the Chinese do something along the line of actual control with India in the Himalayas or in the South China Sea? Will Iran or North Korea undertake some kind of provocation? All of those uh, threats and risks are real. And when the president is diverted, as he clearly is now, uh, it really falls on uh, the national security advisor, the key cabinet officers to do their job plus to make sure that the rest of the world knows that we're paying attention. Now, in terms of Trump directly, uh, I know this may sound kind of difficult to believe, but the president doesn't think in Washington policy terms. He doesn't reason from a set of objectives to uh, from his present location, assessing the means and methods that he needs to achieve his objective, doing cost-benefit analysis, thinking about the consequences. He relies on his gut instinct. He doesn't study the problem. He doesn't think that he needs to. Uh, he thinks he can make deals internationally by sizing up uh, foreign uh, interlocutors uh, and on the spur of the moment coming to agreement. So this, to me, is the exact opposite of the way a president should behave. Uh, and the behavior in these days, these uh, highly stressful days, really isn't all that uh, different. Some people worry that, particularly with the political situation uh, trending in the negative direction it is, that the president would try for a wag-the-dog moment, uh, uh, an unrestrained use of military force somewhere. I certainly don't rule that out, but I think that's very unlikely. I worry about something else. I worry in the next three weeks that he makes a strategic arms deal, quote unquote, with Russia that gives away the store. Uh, I've worried, although I don't think it's likely now with too little time remaining, that he would have a fourth summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, and who knows what they would agree to at that meeting. The kind of flashy, showy, bright lights uh, event. That's what a Donald Trump would think of. And I do think that possibility uh, remains uh, even as the election goes, grows closer. What about the period between the election and the inauguration? Um, I mean, there are two possibilities. One is that he, he, he wins. And I want to ask you about that, but let's set that aside for a second. He's, all, he's signaled that if he doesn't win, that he will consider the election fraudulent and will pursue all avenues. Uh, and given the fact that so many people are voting by, by mail, it may be a few days or more before we know uh, the verdict, although that's growing a little less uh, likely. Um, what is the threat to us of that period uh, when there, you know, there are real doubts? And obviously we already see the Russians, uh, perhaps others as well, sowing doubt about the process itself. Right. Well, in the event Trump loses, uh, one thing you can count on is that he will not leave graciously. Uh, this will be uh, an ugly departure. Uh, whether it rises to the level of, a, of uh, trying to, to steal the election, uh, change the outcome, uh, I don't know. I have to say I'm very worried about some of the things he said, like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, if not quoting exactly, the only way that I can lose is if there's fraud in the yes, election. Yeah. 
That's simply not true. I mean, he he can easily lose uh, by a a straight uh, count in the Electoral College. And and, uh, I think everybody except him may understand that. But uh, at this point, I think we should be concerned about that scenario. But but there's no evidence yet that uh, that he's really prepared to do something about it. I think it's incumbent on all of us. I think it's particularly incumbent on Republicans to be prepared to say we will not accept that kind of behavior. But quite apart from the issue of the election itself, uh, once once it's beyond dispute that he's lost, uh, he's still the president until January the 20th. And I worry that he will do things that um, that will damage the civic culture in the United States, may damage the government, uh, even even though they're repairable when a new president comes in. For example, he might well decide uh, to fire a cabinet official uh, that he would have wanted to have fired if he won and replace him with somebody else. And you say, well, for 78 days total length between of the transition or some period less than that, why bother? Because he's Donald Trump. So one or more cabinet officials could go. It could get more serious than that in a way since cabinet officials, everybody knows, serve at the pleasure of the president. I worry that he will pick somebody like FBI Director Chris Wray and fire him uh, because he's so irritated with his failure to do what he wants on various investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worry that he would go after uh, people in the National Institutes of Health, uh, like Dr. Fauci or the Centers for Disease Control, things like that. Uh, they don't, they're not existential threats to the government, but they're mean and petty. And mm-hmm. I think he's fully capable of that. And there are other uh, uh, steps he could take similar to that that I think would be harmful and unnecessary, but which an ungracious loser like him might well do. Yeah, I, I guess what I was driving at, that is, I, I take all your points. What I was driving at before, there are also many people who will believe that the election was rigged if Donald Trump contends that the election was rigged. And, you know, we, we've seen just this week, you know, I think there was an arraignment today of these uh, men who uh, were plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. There are people out there who are um, moved to do crazy things. And, um, you know, that is, shouldn't that be a concern as well? I think it's possible. I do think uh, this is this is a circumstance where uh, it would be helpful if leaders of the Democratic and Republican parties alike who are not involved in the election campaign speak up. Uh, Senator Romney has issued a statement calling mm-hmm. on everybody and specifically the president to tone things down. Uh, I think that would be advisable. Uh, I think it's also in the in the uh, preventative uh, stage. Uh, if there are still things that can be done in different states to speed up the counting of mail-in ballots, mm-hmm. they need to be undertaken. It's my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, no no processing of mail-in ballots can be done until Election Day. I've heard in Pennsylvania they can't even open the outer envelope to take out the inner envelope until Election Day. That's crazy. Uh, I've already voted uh, absentee in Maryland, and I have a an email back from the state saying they've got my ballot and it's on track. It, it hasn't been counted yet. They'll do that mm-hmm. on Election Day. Why can't other states do that? I mean, it yeah. would solve a lot of potential problems. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a legislative issue in some states. I think uh, it is that what you say is true is in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. It's slightly different in Michigan, though they accept ballots that are postmarked on Election Day uh, after they... Uh, after Election Day. So they will be counting for, I think the Secretary of State there said it will take a week perhaps to know uh, what, potentially a week to know what happened there. Just back back on the president, you know, your book is so uh, enlightening about his, uh, his, his ways of operating. And they're also enlightening about how others discerned his ways of operating and took advantage of it, like uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, Vladimir Putin and, and flattery <laughs> became a very potent tool uh, for that. Talk about that a little because that's the opposite uh, of this. The president can't uh, 
tolerate a verdict of rejection from the voters. So he will depict this election as fraudulent regardless of what is discovered. But uh, in terms of his dealings with leaders around the world, it seems like everybody's figured out sort of how to game him. I, th- I think the uh, particularly our adversaries uh, think he's an easy mark. And uh, let's take Vladimir Putin as an example. I, I, I first met Putin in October of 2001. And uh, in the 20 years since then, he's only gotten smarter, craftier, more knowledgeable and uh, more powerful. And every time I thought of Donald Trump on the phone with him or in a meeting with him, I worried about uh, what might happen. Uh, I think we uh, escape the worst uh, possibilities. But if he gets another term, it's four more years of Putin working on Trump. I think uh, foreign leaders did come to understand that the flattery will get you everywhere uh, with Trump. And I think they also understood that getting Trump alone was the ideal way to negotiate with him. And I'm not speaking only about myself here, but they wanted uh, Vice President Pence separated from him, Secretary of State Pompeo, myself, you, you name it, the fewer people around him, the better. One-on-one, you know, big guy to big guy, uh, let's negotiate. And, and I think that's very dangerous as well. Uh, the classic example, uh, uh, and I write about it in my book, Woodward wrote about it in his book, and had the famous Kim Jong-un letters yes. to Trump. You can't talk about those, right? You, I, I can't. I'm still because of the pre-publication review process. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is I've read all the letters that were exchanged uh, up until the point I left. And uh, I felt if the letters were ever released, they would be embarrassing to Trump, that he, he, he liked them so much. Uh, Kim Jong-un called him Your Excellency. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody gets called Your Excellency in international diplomacy. Your Excellency uh, Axelrod. I mean, we're all excellent, right? Trump yes. didn't understand that. And, 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 and the flavor of the letters uh, was like they were written by some uh, bureaucrat in the Korean Workers' Party agitprop directorate. And he didn't understand that either. Uh, and finally, he did give the letters to, uh, to Woodward. And I suspect people are laughing at these letters in the United States, but they're particularly laughing in North Korea. It just shows how uh, inexperienced he is in the affairs of the world, despite his desire to have a reputation as a very sophisticated, knowledgeable person. So let's uh, let's talk about Putin for a second. You were there in Helsinki. You described being frozen to your chair when you saw uh, the president of the United States essentially take the word of Vladimir Putin on their interference in the U.S. election over the unanimous concurrence of the U.S. intelligence uh, community. This followed a, a meeting that they had for several hours, I think, where no one was there but the trans, uh, but the translator, uh, and she was not allowed to take notes. Um, what what do you make of that? Because I think Americans wonder, what is it about Putin? Why is he so deferential uh, to Putin? Why does he never have a word of criticism uh, for Putin, even when there are reports of bounties taken out against American troops in Afghanistan? Uh, offered by the Russians to the Taliban to kill American soldiers? Well, there, there is no satisfactory explanation for it. That's the short answer. Uh, the, the best that can be said, and, and this actually makes things worse in my view, is that he treats other authoritarian leaders like Xi, like Kim, like Erdogan of Turkey, uh, the same way. Uh, he uh, has commented himself that he he has an affinity for the authoritarian leaders that he doesn't have with the leaders of uh, many of our closest allies, uh, democracies uh, around the world. Uh, I will say with respect to the meeting in Helsinki, uh, 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 my staff uh, did speak to the U.S. interpreter. And uh, uh, the report was that the bulk of that conversation was about Syria and that there was no, uh, there, there were no concessions made on our side. So I feel comfortable about that. And uh, Putin himself said that, uh, that it was Trump who had first raised in that meeting uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. So, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's the appearance is worse than the reality. Uh, uh, but I think Trump is so 
uh, obsessed with refuting the idea that there was collusion with the Russians in 2016, that he simply finds it impossible to admit, except under duress, that the Russians were trying to interfere in the election because he fears if he admits that, in effect, he's admitting collusion, or at least he's conceding the legitimacy of his election. I think that's completely wrong. I think he would strengthen his hand if he were more if he were more uh, upfront about what the Russians did. And honestly, what the, we did in the administration to strengthen the U.S. hand uh, against such interference, which is which is being operationalized even as we speak. Yeah, you uh, uh, you wrote in your book about several instances, Ukraine being the one that gets the most attention. We'll talk about that in, in a bit, uh, where you felt that Trump subjugated the national interest to his political interest, to his his uh, obsession with being reelected. Um, you uh, talk about some of his dealings with China in that regard. Uh, there were some other instances, some that you felt very troubled by. Uh, and but I guess my question is, did you did you ever see evidence that he uh, acted? It was acting in his own personal commercial interest, business interest. No, I didn't see evidence of uh, looking out for his business or economic interest. Uh, I do think that he has trouble uh, to the point of near impossibility of distinguishing his personal interest from the national interest. He thinks that if he has good personal relations with a foreign leader, then the United States has good bilateral relations with that country. Now, I would not diminish the importance of personal relationships in, in, uh, in these kinds of things, but they're obviously not equivalent. And when you see a Xi Jinping or a Vladimir Putin on the other side of the table, you know they don't have any trouble distinguishing Russian or Chinese national interest from personal feelings. I don't think Trump has that ability. If you had $420 million in debt, personal debt, you'd probably have a hard time getting uh, clearance to be national security advisor. Well, I uh, wish I did have $420 million. Yeah, that would be a high-class problem, I acknowledge. <laughs> but, uh, but does it cause you any concern that the president has these massive debts? And does it make him, uh, does it make him a security risk? Well, look, I think uh, if, if you, I, I certainly have not done any study of the president's finances, but I think by reputation, even before he became president, the the network of the Trump organization and the and the complexity of its financial structure uh, makes it pretty clear that there's a lot of leverage and there's a lot of uncertainty uh, uh, in in Trump's performance. And the real issue would be if anybody has taken advantage of it. There's much about that 420 million in debt and other debts. We don't know who holds the debt. We don't know what the terms are, uh, and we don't know, for example, if he loses and comes out and people start saying we want those debts repaid who might come to his rescue then. Uh, so I think these are all legitimate questions, and, and it's for you know Congress and the press to, to ask them. It's, uh, I, I personally think that a presidential candidate should be able to withhold their taxes and finances. I think it's up to them. They want to take that political risk. That's fine. I, I would not require it. But if you do withhold, you got to face the consequences that people are going to say he must be hiding something, and they're going to go after it. But what about, you're talking about candidates, fair enough. What about presidents? I mean, should presidents not have to make fuller disclosure? Because now they are making decisions in the, you know, on behalf of the United States. Shouldn't people know if there's leverage against them? Well, I think most presidential candidates have made disclosures. Yes. And presidents have, have uh, published their tax returns. Uh, I think that's a prudent thing to do. If I were if I were a presidential candidate, I would understand that would be basic uh, political common sense. But I, I wouldn't make it mandatory. I would not. I mean, I think uh, uh, it's uh, I think our I think our politics is too regulated as it is now. And I think that's an example of it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. So let me talk a little bit about your own story. Uh, I was interested uh, in, uh, in reading up uh, on you about your background because, you know, you're seen as kind of an erudite 
kind of player in the Washington intellectual wars. Um, you are the uh, you're the son of a firefighter in uh, in Baltimore. I don't, your your folks uh, didn't go to college, is that right? That's right. And um, you were your father was quite conservative. He inspired you uh, in that same way. Um, and then you went to you won scholarships to a bunch of very elite schools. Uh, one of your friends said, you know, uh, that gave you a bit of a chip on your shoulder because you were the lone working class conservative firebrand in these very liberal environments in the 1960s. Is that a fair assessment? Did that hone your combative ideological instincts? I think it was fight or die at that point, <laughs> politically. Yeah. I mean, uh, what was that like for you? Well, I didn't uh, I didn't mind it. I guess I didn't know better. Uh, maybe I should have. But uh, uh, I was for Goldwater in 1964, and uh, uh, I, I felt that uh, philosophically he, he had the right approach. And uh, uh, really, I'd, I'd studied even high school political philosophy and uh, had read considerable amount of Karl Marx, even as a ninth and 10th grader, and was appalled by it. So it was a fairly easy, uh, fairly easy thing to do. You went, just to, to make matters worse for yourself, you went on to Yale, where at, a, at, at the peak of the anti-war movement, you were pro-Vietnam War, uh, when I'm sure the vast majority of people on campus were anti-war there too. I mean, what was the environment like for you? I, I, I was, I'm a bit younger than you. I remember what those, that period of time was. It was a uh, time in some respects, very similar to, uh, to what we're going through now. And we've seen, it's almost a generational thing 50 years ago, what people were, were seeing the riots on campuses, the, uh, uh, the riots in big cities uh, across the United States uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King and that sort of thing. Uh, and it was one of the reasons that uh, that Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, dropped out of the 1968 race. George Wallace got in. Richard Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey. I mean, it was a very, very contentious time in American life. So the fact it was contentious on college campuses, to me, didn't seem out of the ordinary. You know, my father uh, uh, was out on the uh, the, the rooftops of uh, row houses in Baltimore in the days after Martin Luther King's uh, assassination, putting out fires that rioters were setting in the black neighborhoods in in uh, Baltimore. And, and one night, some guy with a shotgun was firing at the firefighters. Uh, and uh, my father and a couple of other folks who were on the roof of one of the row houses chopping a hole in it to vent the fumes and prevent the whole block from going up uh, took out after the guy with their fire axes. And uh, fortunately for them and the guy who fired the shot, he got away. But, uh, but it, was, it was tense all the way around. You're famously someone who has taken aggressive stance on U.S. military action. You were a supporter of that war. You wrote in your memoir about your decision to join the Maryland National Guard. Uh, and this has earned you the epithet uh, chicken hawk from people who uh, oppose you politically. Uh, but you also suggest that you have regrets about having made that decision. Well, I wrote about this actually in the uh, in, in your 25th uh, yeah. reunion book that oh, uh, we see. put together. And uh, what I said was, uh, it was clear to me in 1970 when I graduated that uh, that we were no longer committed to winning the war in Vietnam. And I made a very cold judgment that uh, there was no point in going out and uh, getting killed when my own classmates would give the rice patty I had died in back to the Viet Cong. Um, and so I did. I joined the Maryland National Guard. I, I didn't have a father who helped me get in it. I mean, he, he, uh, he was rooting for me. He was a veteran of D-Day, thought it was the right thing to do, but he didn't pull any strings. I, I had to go around and find the assignment myself, uh, and I did it. And uh, 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 looking back on it all these years later, uh, I'm not particularly proud of it, but uh, that was the logic I followed at the time, and I haven't tried to hide it. You know, I thought about it in, in the context of your explanation about why you decided not to testify before the House on this um, in the impeachment hearing. And, and you said that you, 
you you knew what the outcome would be, that you didn't think that they were prosecuting the impeachment properly and they should have done it more broadly and that you should have been. So you decided not to uh, participate. And do you think you might come to regret that decision as well? Um, you know, give me another 25 years. We'll have to see. I did say <laughs> a- after the House had screwed this thing up. If I could up, give you another 25, I would, Ambassador, <laughs> I promise you. Uh, after the House had screwed it up, probably beyond redemption, uh, I-, I did say that if the Senate asked for witnesses, I would testify. And uh, obviously the Senate voted against uh, having witnesses, largely because Republicans bought the White House argument that assuming everything the advocates of impeachment said about Ukraine was true. That is to say, basically what I would have repeated and elaborated on, that the Republicans still didn't think that the conduct rose to the level of an impeachable offense. So for those who say if you had testified, the outcome would have been different, I'm afraid by that point the process had been driven into a ditch and it wouldn't have had any effect anyway. Had they done it differently at the beginning, there, there might, might underline that word, have been a different outcome. The thing about offering to testify before the Senate was there was a pretty good sense that the Senate wasn't going to accept witnesses, so it was kind of well, a cost-free offer. No, I don't think so, actually. I, I thought at the time that um, everybody was counting votes, but I thought narrowly they would call for witnesses. And in fact, uh, in preparation for that, uh, my lawyer had gone to the uh, NSC staffer who was doing the pre-publication review of my book and said, will you please do the Ukraine chapter first because we may need that as the basis of testimony. And they refused, by the way, the White House under orders refused to expedite it. You said in the book, we could have confronted Trump directly trying to refute the Giuliani theories, Giuliani's theories being that Ukraine was very much wound up in the uh, in the hacking of the DNC and uh, and and that uh, Hunter Biden had uh, had uh, you know in, uh, vulnerabilities uh, in in the whole story because of his relationship with oligarchs there and that Joe Biden was involved because he uh, publicly tried to get rid of and succeeded a uh, a prosecutor i think everybody in the world in the western world agreed was a corrupt prosecutor but what you wrote was we could have confronted trump directly trying to refute the giuliani theories and arguing that it was impermissible to leverage u.s government authorities for personal political gain that that's what you believe happened right and i think had we had we confronted him with that approach uh, we would have we would not have accomplished any change in his behavior and we would have failed to get the assistance for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I just say on that point, I, I resigned on September the 10th and Trump approved the aid on the 11th. Yeah. So we knew because congressional pressure was building, at least I knew. Well, we and were there were revelations about his conversation uh, with Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. That week, there were a series of revelations that made it politically untenable for him to refuse to give them the aid at that point. Isn't that what happened? Although it still took six weeks. I mean, it was still what what our aim was. And I say our and I include in that Mike Pompeo and uh, Mark Esper, the secretary of defense, uh, was one thing at a time. Get the aid released to Ukraine because we were facing a September 30 end of fiscal year deadline that the money simply would have disappeared. And yes. the idea is get the aid out and then we'll deal with the other thing. And, of course, by the time the aid was out and it was time to turn to the other thing, I was a private citizen again. The other thing, though, as I read your book, is that you believe that he impermissibly leveraged U.S. government authorities for personal political gain. Right. And I think he did that in many other cases as well, in, in dealing with uh, China, in dealing with Turkey, um, and, and potentially in dealing with other countries as well. I thought that was his M.O. Let us uh, go back to your story. You went to Yale Law School, uh, you, uh, where you famously uh, were housemates or friends with Clarence Thomas. He, cre- he lived in married student housing in the apartment uh, below mine, yeah. And he credits you... Uh, over the years with uh, converting him from a left winger to a right winger. Uh, but um, and you you interned uh, with uh, Spiro Agnew when he was uh, vice president in the Nixon administration. And it made me um, uh, think about 
how you, I mean, well, let's leave Spiro Agnew's sorry story aside because he was shortly thereafter uh, indicted and, and, and flushed from office. But uh, Nixon himself, such a complicated and interesting character. Uh, there have been a lot of comparisons between Nixon and Trump because Nixon, uh, of what Nixon did in Watergate um, and the way his presidency ended. What, what is your assessment of Nixon and how do you compare him uh, to Trump in terms of his willingness to subjugate, uh, the, as you say, the authorities of, of government to his, political, uh, to his own political interests? Well, obviously, the, the, the cover-up in the, in the Watergate uh, break-in and sort of associated activities uh, brought Nixon down. Um, and it was a, a, a tragic end to, to his career. Uh, and it was a mistake, and it was undoubtedly uh, impeachable conduct. Uh, but this is, uh, f- uh, not to sound melodramatic, but it's a little bit like a Greek tragedy for Nixon. He had a tragic flaw, and it destroyed him. But in terms of his competency to be president, uh, th- this was a president whose grasp of international affairs uh, still stands out, agree or disagree with his policies, as uh, uh, remarkable in, uh, in the last century. And uh, the things that he and Kissinger were able to do uh, have left a lasting mark uh, on, on the country's policies going forward. He could have been... Uh, in in the wake of defeating George McGovern by uh, what was, I think, at that point, the largest electoral college majority, one of the biggest popular vote majorities in our history, and all of it within a year and a half was gone, and he resigned in disgrace. Uh, Trump will never rise to Nixon's level in terms of reputation and competence. I think he's already below Nixon's level in terms of his integrity and, uh, and uh, personal conduct. Well, uh, let me just run through, and we'll get we'll get back to uh, to Trump. I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize your very very rich history here. You spent the '70s as a young lawyer. While as a young lawyer, you were involved in a Supreme Court case, Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, that uh, that loosened uh, campaign finance laws, allowed uh, people of means to spend their own money uh, in service of their own candidacy. There are a lot of wealthy candidates who probably owe their political careers uh, to you in that regard. Well, let's, let's be clear on what that case was. Though. That was a first strike against one of the post-Watergate reforms, of which there were many, most of which were bad. Uh, and I view that as a critical First Amendment decision. I would just say one other thing. We also had the Federal Election Commission declared unconstitutional because of the means of appointing the commissioners. First time a federal agency was struck down as unconstitutional since the New Deal. And I, I just want to mention that because I think that's, uh, that's a little known part of the case, but one that uh, warmed my heart at the time, I can tell you. And, and then uh, you joined the Reagan administration in the, uh, in the 80s. Uh, you worked at the Justice Department. You were involved in uh, securing the nomination or you were an advocate for the nomination of Robert Bork to the bench. That became a celebrated uh, battle. We're in another Supreme Court uh, confirmation uh, battle now. Uh, You also were involved in the Iran-Contra defense uh, from the Justice Department uh, side. Tell me, because you write a lot about the appropriate uh, actions of government. Tell me what your sort of thumbnail defense of Iran-Contra was. That was the decision to sell arms, secretly to sell arms to uh, the Iranians uh, and then ship the proceeds to the uh, rebels in Nicaragua, uh, both of which were uh, illegal under, under U.S. law. Yeah. Well, I don't defend it. I, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a travesty, not not because it was illegal, as uh, as uh, the iconic French foreign minister uh, uh, Talleyrand once said, it's worse than a crime. It's a mistake. Uh, the idea of trying to appease the Iranians uh, by exchanging uh, terrorists for for uh, things they wanted was a betrayal of what Reagan had always said, that we're not going to negotiate with the terrorists. It was a mistake. When you do that, you're incentivizing other terrorists to capture more Americans, to bargain for them, number one. Uh, And number two, bringing the proceeds of the sales of the uh, 
IHAWK uh, anti-aircraft missiles back to be transferred to the Contras, uh, what the uh, CIA Director Casey called an off-the-shelf capability, meaning off-budget, was exactly the kind of uh, private diplomacy, private uh, uh, conduct of foreign policy that Trump and Giuliani were engaging in in Ukraine. And uh, it was it was a mistake and it had uh, extremely negative consequences. What what I was involved in was the uh, Iran country committee investigation of all this, the Joint House and Senate committee, uh, really defending the authority of the presidency and, and the president's action against excessive congressional involvement. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You served in also in the George H.W. Bush uh, administration, and uh, ultimately in the George W. Bush administration, uh, where you were a big player, you were the uh, uh, you were the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs. Um, you were very close to Vice President uh, Cheney, uh, and this was the period, obviously, in which uh, we were attacked. The Iraq War uh, came up. Um, you still look at the Iraq War as the proper decision because President Bush has been. Uh, has has had second thoughts and expressed them about that, as have some others, but you have not, and I'm I'm wondering why. Well, what I what I uh, view as the Iraq War took about three or four weeks uh, with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, and it was a uh, uh, it was a it was a, a nearly flawless military operation. And I think that was the right thing to do. I think removing him from power was the right thing to do. He was a threat to us and our friends in the region. Uh, that, to me, was the Iraq War, where where I depart from the Bush administration policy was in the post-war activity and the idea of setting up the coalition provisional authority, uh, becoming a player in Iraq politics, trying to build uh, a new democratic state in Iraq. Uh, what I said at the time, and, and I suppose it's a little bit flip, but what I said at the time was, while I would have kept American military forces in Iraq because of the threat from Iran and the threat from Syria, I would have given the Iraqis the reins of government. Uh, I would have given them a copy of the Federalist Papers, and I basically would have said, good luck, because I don't think it's America's responsibility to build governments for other people. I would say the opposite. You don't build political maturity by doing things for other people. They build their own political maturity by making hard decisions. We had overthrown Saddam Hussein, which the opposition, the the uh, various uh, factions of the opposition could never have done on their own. But building the new Iraq would be up to them. I'm curious as to you work for uh, President, I mentioned President George H.W. Bush. Do you think that he made a mistake by not toppling Saddam then, you know, he was, uh, he was, he could have rolled into, uh, into the uh, Baghdad and taken Saddam out then. And he, he thought that was not the right thing to do, was not in keeping with the coalition's will that he built. And he, he did not do it. Yeah. Uh, I have to say in a, an exercise of pure 2020 hindsight, the answer is yes, we should have overthrown Saddam. At the time, I thought the decision to halt the hostilities was correct, uh, but I think it was a mistake. And the reason I would give is this. Uh, George H.W. Bush's objective was to restore the status quo antebellum prior to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And that he did. He accomplished it. But I think the status quo antebellum is not enough. When somebody commits aggression like that and you go in to reverse it, uh, it has to be a lesson, not just that you can't keep the fruits of your aggression, but it's the aggression itself that's impermissible. And that would have justified overthrowing Saddam at the time. You've also, you know, at times advocated, uh, and and perhaps you still do, uh, military action uh, against North Korea to deal with their nuclear program. You 
famously wrote an essay saying that was the way we should deal with uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear threat. I remember being in the White House and seeing sort of uh, exercises where the military would um, game out what the consequences of such things would be in terms of uh, the commitment of forces and uh, the likely number of losses and so on. And uh, they were they were pretty dramatic. Uh, so how do you weigh that in your own mind uh, as you make these judgments? Well, I think the North Korea situation and the Iran situation are very, very different. Um, and it takes a while to explain that. But I think the calculus is, uh, uh, is very different. And the question is, uh, fundamentally, though, uh, how much are you willing to allow Americans to be at risk? Uh, let's take North Korea as the as the case. We now have Kim Jong-un showing off what are purportedly significant new ballistic missile capabilities a few days ago. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily are. They could be paper mache for all for all I know. Uh, but uh, how much risk are we prepared to accept of Americans uh, being put at, at uh, in danger uh at the decision of the world's only hereditary communist dictatorship. Uh, and uh, the, the best answer to that question was actually given by General Joe Dunford, who at the time was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when he said, look, uh, I don't want to contemplate war on the Korean Peninsula, but what I cannot contemplate is Americans being killed by a nuclear weapon launched from North Korea. That's what it comes down to. So for me, what that says is, and I have urged it for 20 years, unsuccessfully on with respect both to North Korea and Iran, for God's sake, stop the capability early when the risks are low uh, and the benefits are high. And for 20 years, we've screwed around with respect to both North Korea and Iran, and we're now in much greater danger. And in my book, I quote a line from Winston Churchill, where he says, referring to Nazi Germany, he said, the unwillingness to deal with, with that threat much earlier uh, demonstrates the confirmed unteachability of mankind. And I have to say, watching those North Korean missiles, that was all I could think about. So uh, you must have bridled and you wrote that you did when uh, President Trump began his bromance with uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, it was an embarrassment. It's still an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And it's more than an embarrassment. For, for four years now, two and a half of this bromance, uh, we have accomplished nothing really in terms of slowing down or reversing North Korea's nuclear or ballistic missile programs, which means we're now that much closer to a capability uh, for North Korea to be able to threaten us with nuclear weapons or, just as bad, sell those capabilities to terrorist groups or other rogue states. On Iran, and I don't—I know you have a, a, a strongly uh, enunciated view of the Iran uh, nuclear agreement that the president and you were involved in this that the president uh, backed out of. Um, but uh, it does—it does incentivize the Iranians to reaccelerate their program. It does—it uh, does—it uh, uh, does promote the. Uh, the ejection of inspectors, it does make it easier for them to be right back to where we were before the program was started. So what, what is your prescription for dealing with the Iranians? Now, do you still believe that uh, some sort of military action and overthrow of the government is the only way to stop the threat? Well, let me say, the, the, the first point is that I never believe that the deal itself was adequate to restrain their nuclear ambitions. And I believe that to this day. Uh, we have no way of checking in much of Iran uh, for activity that wasn't previously declared to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And while people say, but, but we, we know what they're up to. Yes, indeed. Just as George Tenet once said, it's a slam dunk that Iraq has WMD programs. It's a slam dunk. We know that uh, that Iraq has WMD programs. It's a slam dunk. We know that Iran doesn't. There's no slam dunk in intelligence. Uh, and the Iranians could be renting capabilities from North Korea. That's another possibility. 
I believe that that Iran, that the regime in Iran, the Islamic Revolution in 1979 is the threat, the threat through its nuclear weapons program, its support for terrorism, its conventional military activities uh, in the region. And that threat will not be eliminated by any deal that the regime will ever sign, uh, because the way to do it is to eliminate the regime. That does not necessarily mean the use of U.S. military force at all. I think the regime is deeply unpopular. Uh, I think the one thing that keeps it in power is the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, and uh, I think if uh, if we had been smarter over the past 20 years, uh, we'd be a lot closer to seeing the regime in ashes. Um, you know, you mentioned intelligence. Um, you were the U.N. ambassador for uh, famously for a, for a brief time under the Bush administration. Um, you you uh, were deeply critical from within uh, of the U.N. Uh, and when you came up for confirmation, you were deprived confirmation. One of the one of the uh, principal reasons was a, a suggestion that you didn't really accept intelligence and that what intelligence came up with conclusions that were inconvenient to your argument that you were quick to dismiss it and to take off after the intelligence uh, community and those age and those uh, operatives and analysts who developed the intelligence. Is that a fair, a fair attack? No, it's completely inaccurate. I, I deal with that in my first book, Surrender is Not an Option. And uh, most of the controversy surrounded one uh, State Department uh, officer who lied to me. And I did come down hard on him. I don't like people lying to me. And I never uh, shied away from saying that. Let's let's go back to your relationship with the president. You know, we, we just talked about your philosophy. And it's curious to me that you guys ended up together because in some ways, you know, you, you are very much uh, one who is suspicious of international institutions uh, that you feel encroach on American sovereignty. That is consistent with the, the Trump philosophy. But on these questions of intervention, uh, you're in a completely different place. I mean, he ran as someone who is deeply critical of the Iraq war. Uh, you know, you, he's intermittently talked. In fact, he talks to you now about being a war. He talks about you as being a, a warmonger. Um, and I'm wondering how you guys got together. He obviously you, you wrote that he watched you on Fox News and on that basis made you the national security advisor. Uh, what did he miss? And what did you miss about him that caused you to take the job? Yeah. Well, uh, first, uh, I think I think it's clear Trump doesn't have a philosophy. Uh, he doesn't have a grand strategy. He doesn't adhere to policy. He's just a series of transactions. I've described his decisions as an archipelago of dots. Yes. And, saw that. you know, go, go for that. Uh, I had, I would say, a number of very substantive conversations with him beginning in uh, 2014 over the years during the campaign, during the transition, during the year plus. You, want, you wanted to be in. Secretary of State. Right. And uh, we had uh, really, we toured the horizon, as they say, of foreign policy issues. Uh, I'm, I've never been accused of being shy of explaining my views. I told him exactly what I thought. As I say, he had watched me on Fox for 10 years. Didn't he understand what we were talking about? Um, I, I was also not, uh, you know, find the guy or hired Bolton and fire him. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the reasoning on my side was that uh, uh, certainly I had heard all the criticisms of Trump. I'd seen, I'd watched him on TV. But I felt, despite what I had seen, that the gravity of the office, the weight of the responsibility uh, would have an effect on him and that uh, we, we could make it work. And uh, I think the book describes the long, sad story of why that was wrong. What, what, when you were briefing him during those years leading up to his presidency, was he more attentive to detail? Was he more interested in, uh, in what you had to say? Because what you describe in the book is kind of horrifying in terms of his unwillingness to, he, you know, I, I, we talked about bilats with other countries. I remember how finely orchestrated they were. Everyone knew what the president was going to say. That was all <laughs> arranged. We, we had a good sense of what they were going to say. Um, and there was nothing left to sort of chance or, uh, you know, impulse. Uh, that is completely not what happened. So was, 
did you not see those tendencies when you sat down with him uh, in those early years? No, I thought in many of the conversations, not all of them, but uh, but he did listen. Uh, uh, those turned out to be, uh, I think, a, a form of salesmanship on on his part, uh, because I had also heard that H.R. Uh, McMaster, my predecessor, in trying to brief him while he was national security advisor, uh, uh, ran into difficulty because Trump would would just start waving him away, stop listening to him, stop being uh, attentive to the briefing, and it was clear that uh, that anything that that was that was more than a few sentences long just wasn't going to grab his attention. So I knew that was a problem uh, going in, and I tried to find ways to work around it. I think those ultimately. Uh, turned out to be a very mixed success. That would be a, a, the best I can say about it because he did not feel the need to learn what he didn't know. He didn't feel he needed to know that much to deal with the international problems he faced. And what are the consequences of that? Well, bad decisions on the part of the president. They, they reflect his uh, instinctive, ad hoc, transactional approach to decision-making. I'm sure it was true on the domestic side, too, from what I could see, but it's certainly the exact opposite of the way you should behave in uh, uh, in international affairs. And, you know, I watched uh, uh, humorously, really, on TV, the criticism of the lack of process in the NSC under the Trump administration. Tell me how you're supposed to run a process involving the president when he doesn't want a process. So we struggled at lower levels, but uh, but ultimately the top decisions are made by the president, and he bridled at uh, at a more structured way of looking at things. We saw this in the uh, in the campaign of 2016 when he uh, said that he was uh, that he knew more about uh, ISIS than the generals. Uh, now it appears that he feels like he knows more about. Uh, the coronavirus than the public health uh, experts. Um, these do have consequences. How does the world, uh, I guess my question to you also is, how, do, how is the world looking at him? Because what you hear from the president is that we're much more respected in the world today than when he uh, became president. Uh, that doesn't square with the polling from around the world, commentary from around the world, but I'm wondering what your perception is. Look, I think the buildup of the defense budget has had a huge impact internationally. I think it was necessary. I think it was driven far too low in the Obama administration, and it's still not at levels where it should be. And and the increased capacity of U.S. forces around the world uh, has undoubtedly gotten people's attention. That has little or nothing to do with Trump's performance in office. I think people uh, laugh at him. I think they think he's a joke. And what I say to particularly to friendly audiences in Europe and, and in, uh, in our other uh, countries of our other allies, is you must treat Trump as an anomaly. This is an aberration. And if he loses, uh, the damage will go away and we will fix it together. Uh, and people should not draw uh, extensive conclusions about the, the United States, its interest in alliance structures or peace and stability around the world, or even protecting our own interests around the world, simply based on the conduct of Donald Trump. You know, the rise of uh, populist nationalism is not limited to the U.S. Uh, the strains on democracy around the world are not limited uh, to the U.S. So uh, Trump may be the most, uh, uh, the most obvious and um, uh, flamboyant symbol of that, um, but there are stresses on democracy here, and they're being pressed by adversaries uh, as we speak. That will some, that will be something for the next president, if it's not Donald Trump, to, to cope with. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't think Donald Trump is smart enough to be a threat to democracy. Well, Putin, Putin apparently apparently did. What do you think that the um, you you say? Well, if, Putin if, thought he could sow mistrust among Americans. Doesn't that hurt democracy? Yeah, but but that was something that uh, that preceded Trump. Remember the discussions that uh, that Russia and the Soviet Union have had about how to influence us go back to the communist effort to take control of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, back when Hollywood, not social media, but Hollywood was a was a main uh, vehicle for influencing public opinion. So they've had this in view for a long time. Um, you said if 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 Trump wins, uh, if Trump loses, uh, this will be an anomaly. What if he wins? 
Well, then uh, I think uh, the, the, the damage in a second term could well be irreparable. That, that's why for the first time in my adult political life, I'm not going to vote for a Republican nominee for president. I think he needs to be a one-term president. And to you personally, as the Justice Department has opened a grand jury investigation uh, uh, into whether you uh, included classified information in your book, you're steadfast in your assertion that you did, uh, did not. Do you worry uh, if he were to win about yourself? Well, I, I took all this into account as I was writing the book. Uh, the manuscript was fully cleared by the authorized national security official who clears such manuscripts. It was clear from public statements that Trump made he wanted to suppress the book before the election, which, by the way, tells you something about whether he thinks the material was really classified or not. Because if it was, what difference does it make if it comes out on November 2nd or November the 4th? It only makes a difference to Trump politically. So we're, we're, we're going to pursue this, and I'm very confident uh, I never intended to disclose classified information, and I didn't. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you. It's good to be with you, and I'm sure we'll hear more from you uh, as time goes on here. This is, as you say, if Trump is an interlude, I'm sure this is an interlude in your long career here, and you'll be speaking out in the future. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.